Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Food for Thought. This is the podcast that's on a mission to equip you all with the evidence-based advice that you need to live and breathe a healthy lifestyle. You pick and choose what you consume, what you listen to and apply it in a way that works for you because we are all unique. I'm Rhiannon Lambert, registered nutritionist, Sunday Times best-selling author and founder of the Harley Street Clinic Retrition and of course the evidence-based supplements company Retrition Plus. In each of these episodes, we have incredible guests who are at the forefront of their fields who will be giving us the trusted advice, that's what we all need, and answering your burning questions, which, let's be honest, in nutrition, the questions seem to be never-ending these days. Now, this series combines some of the many highlights over the years, and I hope will continue to support your nutrition and well-being. Research indicates that as much as 70% of our immune system resides in the gastrointestinal tract, and scientists have recently started exploring the mechanisms by which gut bacteria may influence the brain. I know you've all probably heard me talking about the gut-brain axes before. So this week's Food for Thought showcases just how important our gut health is. I really wanted to get this episode in there. I feel that there's so much talk and buzzwords surrounding gut health, how we can enhance it. And of course, we need the facts. So cracking down on those digestive myths. It was so difficult to select the guests for this podcast because it's just one of the most talked about subjects. But I've definitely narrowed it down to some really important elite conversations here. Let's start with Professor Tim Spector. The incredible British epidemiologist, I'm sure you all know him, and we discuss what gut health is, the immune system, um, our individual differences, eating habits and behaviours, and let's just go straight to it. Let's start, first of all, by explaining to everybody what, what do we even mean by gut microbiome, because I think it's become increasingly, I don't know if popular is the right word, but I guess more understood or talked about, maybe? Yeah. Yeah, I think people have heard the word now, whereas five years ago they hadn't. Mm. And so people know about it and they know it's more than just yogurt, which I think is you know, what people used to think. Just, you know, OK, there's micro microbes in yogurt. That's what it is. But it's much more than that. It's it's this whole community of other uh, microscopic bugs that live inside us that work with us to basically keep us healthy. And I think it's the other way of seeing it now is seeing it like an accessory organ in our bodies, like we found a second liver, because 
this community of trillions of these microscopic bugs, which are bacteria, they're fungus, they're parasites, all living together, they're like chemical factories. Mm -hmm. And they're converting food that we give them into other chemicals. And those chemicals are helping uh, keep our immune system going and keeping our uh, metabolism going, our brain in the right direction and, and fighting all kinds of diseases. So I think that's a new way of looking at it. Uh, but the word itself, microbiome, is exactly the same. But we're learning more about it every day. If you were to pinpoint some key areas that you are able to definitively say the gut microbiome plays a role in our health, what would those be? I think the number one thing would be the immune system. Um, so certainly when we did research just throwing, uh, measuring thousands of twins that we have and we looked at all their diseases that people report over the last 20 years with their gut microbes, the sort of associations that came up most were things like uh, food allergies and um, autoimmune diseases. Mm. And I think they were the, the top one followed by obesity and diabetes. So I think it's, you know, it, it's not all of one or the other, but definitely the immune system is absolutely crucial to uh to our health for you know when we think of it it's not just allergies but the immune system is also crucial for fighting cancer for anti-aging for fighting infections like covid and we know that from our own studies we did with the zoe app you know that that food quality is important implying that the gut microbiome is also key to that as well so i think it's starting to creep into every area of medicine and we're only just beginning to work out the mechanisms of how it how it does this because it's as always science is always much more complex than we think uh at the moment we've got to really you know build build that into our expectations it does feel like we're in a new age or you know you must feel like you're on the verge of this incredibly exciting area and research coming to light and i think for a lot of people listening they're going to probably be thinking all right so how do I get more, is it good bacteria? I'm just dumbing it down there, but how do I get more good versus, I guess, bad bacteria? Yeah, so our idea of what a good and bad gut health is has is, is, is been slowly evolving. And for many years, it's the simplistic way of looking at it has been gut diversity, the number of different species we have in our microbe, in our guts. And we know that, you know, hunter-gatherer tribes are the healthiest because they've got double the number of species that we do. And that's what we've been aspiring to. But recently, uh, we're now looking at the ratio of, of good to bad bugs. And with the Zoe team uh, on the PREDICT studies, that many people know about, we looked at a thousand people in great detail and linked the foods that they're eating to the microbes inside them and the various disease outcomes uh, that, that they were linked to. And from that, we came across 30 gut microbes that were either good or bad in the vast majority of people. There are lots of other microbes that only a few of us have. They're rather personalized, but mm. these are the common ones. And so from that, we've got this new concept, really, of this balance of the good and the bad. And we know that there are certain foods that are associated with uh, good bacteria and other foods are associated with bad bacteria. So the idea is to uh, 
provide people with personalized advice that uh, pushes that balance in the right direction. And everyone's starting from a different starting point, if you like. So mm. it's often easier to improve someone with a, uh, a very bad diet than it is someone who's quite good anyway. Um, and we're finding it's quite personalized, the advice that we give. And so far, it's been slightly easier to quickly get rid of the bad bacteria than build up the good bacteria. It's taking longer. So we're, we're just starting to get good evidence on this because it, it takes several years until you've got enough people that have, yeah. you've studied over time to do this. But it seems to be this, this balance between suppressing the bad ones, which are obviously often pro-inflammatory, and also trying to get the number of good ones up, which is what, what you need to prevent diseases, etc., and so it's this trying to find this balance is what we need to be doing in the future, but very early days. Perhaps this is a good opportunity for you to delve into some of the results from the twin studies that you do to explain how much of an influence that we can have potentially in the environment. Because a lot of people say, oh, I didn't have a great start. You know, how can I? Does it really matter? Can I actually make a difference now at this point in time? Or should I have done it when I was two, three years old? Yeah, no, great question. Um, most of my scientific career has been looking at twins. And generally, we find these big similarities between identical twins that are more than uh, looking at fraternal twins. And that's how we know things are genetic. And obviously, if they're genetic, there's not much you can do about it. You can blame your parents, but you're limited in what you can do. Mm. And also in twin studies, you can see about early environment. And that's the time that twins spend together uh, in that family environment, which might be going to the same school or uh, having the same mother or being in the same neighborhood. And it turns out from our studies that when we looked at twins, uh, genetics formed a very small part of our gut health and our gut microbiome, really tiny. It was something around less than 10% which was one of the lowest figures I've ever come across. Yeah. And the, uh, there was some effect of family environment, what you shared in the family, but most of it, most of it was what we call specific environment, which are things that you can actually, all of us can change. And they were either you know, due to random error or um, our eating habits or our lifestyle habits as adults. And I think that's really important and it is really encouraging for many people. So the fact that you might have you know, had a, a relatively deprived childhood food wise or, you know, lived through eras when, uh, you know, your parents thought canned food was great or, uh, you know, TV dinners were the, the thing to have. It doesn't, doesn't mean it's not too late to change and modify your your gut microbes uh, decades later. So it's a very different story to one I'm normally telling uh, based on twin research. And I think that's really yeah. encouraging. And that's why all of us can improve our gut microbes, whatever uh, start we had in life. Now, I really wanted to discuss fermented foods. So I've got Kaf back on the podcast here. So Catherine Rebess is one of my registered dietitians in the Retrition Clinic. She's an incredible gut health specialist. And we discuss everything from gut brain axes, leaky gut, plant points in particular, and the Mediterranean diet links with depression. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. 
A lot of people now are very aware of these products on the shop shelves that have probably been there a very long time but are just gaining traction. Things like kimchi, kombucha, um, sauerkraut, kefir, miso, you know, all these fermented foods and drinks. Um, but why are they all of a sudden, I guess, fashionable? I can say that word, fashionable. Yeah, for sure. Well, fermented foods have certainly increased in popularity. And I do think this is due to the potential benefits it does have with our gut health. Mm. So as more and more people are starting to learn about the importance of gut health, there has been a real shift I've noticed um, in people wanting to make positive changes to their diet to help improve it which is great, of course, um, and particularly as diet is one of the most effective ways to boost our gut microbiome, mm. which of course I'll go into. Um, so fermented foods in particular, they do contain like millions of live microbes as a form of probiotic. Um, and they also produce byproducts, which the microbes need to support our gut health. There was actually a recent study by Hannah Wastick et al. And it was actually um, a, a study, a random controlled trial. So one of the highest strengths of evidence showing that um, fermented foods, they gave a, a, a group of people a six servings of fermented foods a day and this actually increased the microbiome diversity in that group and decreased markers of inflammation in healthy mm. adults which is huge yeah so it certainly shows how um, beneficial fermented foods are and I think that definitely plays that role in people now seeing you know having that rate that that sort of new rage of fermenting foods and how they can incorporate it more within the diet research certainly supports that yeah 100 percent. please send me that study by the way when we're off air, I, shall. I, I would love to have a good delve into that um i think the other thing to bear in mind as well is like when we're talking about gut microbiome you know we're not just talking about bacteria there's so many of the types of microbes that live in our gut as well such as fungi parasites the good and the bad um, mm -hmm. and viruses and they function almost like a second brain it's like this beautiful ecosystem um, and the health of the complexity of that ecosystem really relies on diversity so the more diverse our gut microbiome is by incorporating things like fermented foods we can actually improve that functional capability and that interaction with the human cells so amazing. it's amazing yeah. I, I mean because when you say oh fungi or um you know, bacteria I think everybody will be imagining something really gruesome and really um, <laughs> just not nice but actually it's incredible that we all the earth and us as human beings need these things to survive and perhaps now is a good time to go into the evidence surrounding something called the gut brain axes um I guess kind of what it is and why it's suddenly become not suddenly I mean, it's just been I guess discovered why it's important yeah um great question Ray. and it there's so much emerging evidence around the gut brain axis and what we do know from the studies is that the gut brain axis is all these microbes that have a two-way communication between basically the enteric nervous system of the gastrointestinal tract so our gut and the central nervous system which is the brain via the vagus nerve and is referred to as the gut brain axis now this communication occurs via the parasympathetic nervous system um, which also is known as our rest and digest mode and this mm. is the complete opposite response to our sympathetic nervous system which is that fight or flight mode which gets us ready um, but the parasympathetic 
returns our body to this state of calm and rest, whereas the sympathetic nervous system gets the body ready for that fight or flee, which can increase the blood pressure, breathing, that slowing down of digestion and taking blood and oxygen away to other parts of the body. So it's important that people know it is this sort of two-way communication, almost like a highway of cars going back and forth between the gut and the Mm. brain. Amazing. So it's constantly talking to each other. Yeah, like you said, there's a cause and an effect, I suppose, of of this influence. And I mean, what sort of things does it influence? What pathway, what what messages do we know are being sent from from our gut up to our brain? I guess something we talk about a lot in the nutrition clinic is definitely the fact that it's not us telling us when we're hungry it's our gut sending the signals up to our brain to then create a response so how much do we know well what we do know so far is it can actually communicate via sending signals via the um Uh, chemical hormones that will work in our brain so these are via neurotransmitters and they play a really key role in regulating the gut too Um, and that could be via the serotonin which as we know is like the happy hormone and Mm. 90% of serotonin is actually produced by the gut microbes which is insane Um, low serotonin levels can be linked to things like food cravings low mood and even depression and a lot of those antidepressant medications work by uh, the chemicals within the serotonin also things like dopamine as well which is like our motivation and our reward hormone if there is this sort of imbalance within um, our, our gut and the gut microbes this can actually lead to inhibiting the cells that make dopamine And low levels of dopamine, as we know, has been linked with low motivation, mood swings and even low concentration levels. Um, So there is this huge uh, link of how the gut can influence how we actually feel. But also these other communications that seem to happen are, you know, via the immune system as well, um, which I'm sure we'll go into in a bit of detail. But Mm. also, you know, the different types of bacteria in our gut can significantly control risk of certain diseases such as obesity diabetes even have involvement with uh, communication of the brain in terms of that functioning of calming hormones and other hormones that have involvement with with the regulating of appetite too so huge 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 probably a good time to get the immune system in there as well because obviously when we're stressed we know that can um, suppress or weaken our immune system or if we're over exercising so how let's just start from the beginning what is the link between gut health and the immune system (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So 70% of the body's entire immune system resides in the gut. Mm. So it needs to be that if you think about it, though, because throughout life, we are exposed to so many new things. And that's often via our gut. Uh, This could be food, you know, substances, whether good or bad, environment and germs. So it's so important that the body can tolerate many of those sort of harmless things we do come across. So to do this, the gut microbes from a really, really young age, like from zero years, actually educates and supports the immune system to know what's what. And to do that, it needs fiber. The gut microbes literally cannot survive without the fiber to do that function, as well as so many others that we have already spoken about. And the link there is 
between the fact that when fibre is digested, unfortunately, it can't be digested in the small intestine. So it does travel to the large intestine where it is fermented by bacteria. And this produces something called short chain fatty acids, also known as metabolites, which actually helps regulate our immune system. And they're also known as acetate, propanate and butyrate. Butyrate, yeah. Mm-hmm. So these short-chain fatty acids are like fuel for our gut and it actually supports our gut lining to keep it healthy and reduces that risk of the intestinal cell walls. So our gut bacteria from becoming permeable and, and basically opening, which is also known as a common term we might see in the clinic as leaky gut. Oh. Now, this Yes. Sorry, go on. I know, I know. So this causes bacteria and food molecules to pass into the bloodstream and cause an immune response, literally inflammation, which is a form of the attack. So that's the real link there between the short chain fatty acids and the gut cells and how how beneficial they are for keeping that gut lining um, impermeable. A lot of people listening to this podcast will probably have heard of um, a lot of talk about eat 30 different plants a week. Um, Where does that come from? And let's touch on diversity a bit and maybe, um, I guess, what you said at the beginning about depression. Yeah, so evidence has shown that people who do have higher plant diversity up to this, what we're seeing now, you know, the 30 different types of plant-based foods a week have an overall better gut health when compared to those that had less than 10 and that was from a huge huge um, trial that was done called the, the American Gut Project in 2018 but there's also been more recent trials via Professor um, Tim Spector and the twin study which has shown that you know beneficial gut bacteria colonizes from different types of dietary fibers found in only in plants and products which have added fiber so I think we should all try to aim for the 30 different plants a week and this should include a complete variety whether it be nuts seeds whole grains herbs and spices pulses beans you know fruits and vegetables all these different types and throughout the week switching it up too because if we're not doing that we're literally starving our gut microbes and then they cannot do all these incredible functions that they're set out to do yeah exactly exactly it's quite fascinating isn't it and I read a piece of research as well that said that, you know, just diversity and looking after your gut is enough to maybe not use medication? So there is, um, and I think you're linking that to probably the SMILES trial, Mm. uh, which was a really incredible trial done in 2017. And that compared two groups of uh, people that received, there was the intervention group that received dietary support from um, a dietitian and then their other group were a social group which had like a befriending sort of support Um, and it was astonishing the results actually they what it suggested was that improving your diet by adding following sort of like a Mediterranean style diet so whole grains fruits and veg nuts you know seeds legumes pulses um, fish and olive oil we can actually target the depression um, and it may be useful and an accessible strategy for actually addressing depression in the in the general population mm-hmm. 32% actually achieved remission of their clinical depression in the dietary group just from diet no medication just, well some did have a history of psychotherapy or they right. did have a bit of pharma yeah they did have a bit of pharmaceutical 
label companies, but I think it's not that clear in the actual study itself what they were receiving. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Now, one area that I had to get into this episode is the conversation that surrounds bloating. I think bloating, effect, well, it does affect everybody, but it's how severe it can be for some and how triggering it can feel for others. So Caitlin Colucci and I, registered dietitian, focus on chronic bloating, on how our overall health can be impacted, things that may trigger it, and basically what you can do to manage any symptoms. Bloating is one of the most common gut symptoms that people report to me in clinic, and it's also a topic that really does track, attract uh, some pretty crazy uh, media stories out there. Mm. But the simple fact is we cannot tell what's going on inside our body just by looking at the outside. But what we can understand and look for really is if our bloating is intermittent, so which is the type that kind of comes and goes over the course of the day, or we can look to see if our bloating is continuous. And that's when there really is no fluctuation over the course of the day and you're constantly bloated. So mm. intermittent bloating tends to be a lot more common. And this is the type that typically can be managed through diet and lifestyle, whereas continuous bloating is much less common. And it is best to have this reviewed by your GP first. So I guess it makes um, sense to explain why do we get bloated? Let's start there. Yeah, now this is quite a big question because... You know, bloating is quite a complex area. Mm. Um, it is important to remember, however, that a little bit of bloating is completely normal. So particularly after we've eaten a large meal or maybe a high fiber meal. And actually bloating can be a really good sign that our gut microbes are doing what they should. But when we look at what bloating is, um, you know, put very simply, it's the feeling of increased pressure in your intestine that in obviously some people can cause this visible protrusion. Um, but there's no one single cause of bloating. And it is much more complex than pointing the finger at, at what we're eating. Um, yeah, which when is we what many at, people do, don't they? It's yeah, think it's just what you eat. Yes, absolutely. But when we look at what uh, you know, what causes bloating and why we get bloated, there's kind of four main areas we need to think about. So 
one of which is gas production. Um, another area is what we call intestinal sensitivity or hypersensitivity. Another area can be gas absorption. Um, and then in a subset of people, we have um, something called a diaphragm uh, reflex. Um, so I don't know if you want me to expand a little bit more yeah, on those kind of four definitely. areas. definitely. That's exactly what we want to hear. Thank you. So when we look at gas production, obviously the built up pressure inside our intestines can result from how much we've obviously had to eat or drink. But this can also result from the gas produced from our gut microbiota. Mm. When we eat large amounts of fermentable carbohydrates and some types of fiber in particular. So this gas production can build up and causes our intestines to stretch, giving this sensation of bloating. What's really interesting, though, is that studies have looked at those who suffer from bloating and have actually found that the intestinal gas production is similar to those people who report no bloating whatsoever. Hmm. And this is all due to the sensitivity of the intestines. So if you have increased sensitivity, known as visceral hypersensitivity, which is particularly common in people with functional gut disorders like IBS, for example, mm. um, who are much more likely to feel bloated than those without these functional gut disorders. Wow. Yeah. Um, another area is gas absorption. So, you know, as I've just said, we all produce some gas when we eat food, but some people are more susceptible to bloating depending on the balance of, between how much gas they produce, but also how efficient your body is at absorbing it. And also the transport of gas through the intestine can sometimes be an issue for some people. And this results in that feeling of kind of uncomfortable trapped gas. And that's, I and, think, something that, yeah, a lot of people report that kind of painful experience. Yes, absolutely. And that's when you get the discomfort. Um, and then a final subset of people, in particular, when we look at those with functional gut disorders like IBS, um, bloating can be made a lot worse due to a reflex of their diaphragm. So, for example, if you're experiencing abdominal pain or discomfort, then the gut will trigger the brain via the gut-brain axes um, to contract the diaphragm and relax the stomach muscles in an attempt to relieve this uncomfortable feeling. And this can cause quite severe belly protrusion. So this is when many people describe, you know, looking six months pregnant or so. Are there certain types of foods and drinks that may trigger these different responses? Yeah, so despite the complexity of bloating, uh, in many cases, it really can be reduced with either simple dietary changes or simple lifestyle changes. Mm. So the first area I always focus on is making sure you're not swallowing excess air from things like chewing gum and carbonated drinks. So I always think if you're suffering from bloating, you certainly don't want to be putting more bubbles into the problem mm. area. Mm. Um, chewing gum in particular and other sugar-free foods actually contain ingredients called polyols, which are known as artificial sweeteners, things such as mannitol, zorbitol, xylitol, anything that ends in OL, um, <laughs> and these are known to trigger bloating. Um, when we look at chewing, however, not chewing gum, but when we actually look at chewing our food, if people are eating too quickly um, or not chewing their food well enough, 
then this means they can actually swallow more air if they're chewing quickly, talking with their mouth full, but then creating more work for your digestive system to do. Um, and eating quickly again can trigger more bloating. Right. So that's to do with chewing more air. What were the other factors then to do with the types of foods that you would look at, the things that you'd address in clinic? So I'd also see if people were having particularly large meals. So if someone suffers from bloating, then I'd suggest eating smaller portions throughout the day and definitely trying not to skip meals just because if we skip meals, we tend to then overeat or eat a larger portion at our next meal because we are more hungry. Um, I also just make sure that people aren't overdoing it on things like fermented foods. So fermented foods are Mm. very popular these days. So popular. Um, (laughs) Very hot topic. Things like kefir, sauerkraut, kimchi, um, or eating, you know, a lot of, if if my clients are eating a lot of known gas producing foods, so things like beans, pulses, cauliflower, kind of every day in large quantities, then I suggest just reducing their intake of these slightly because that might be contributing to some of the bloating. There's a there's a lot of talk on obviously about gut health anyway in general, Caitlin, and it can be I think a little bit overhyped because obviously we we need a lot more research. It's a very tricky area, I guess, to um get to the bottom of because it's just huge and fascinating but what is the actual correlation then between gut health which is a phrase and I guess in this this instance we're talking about that bacteria we mentioned at the beginning giving off the excess gases that live down there and bloating is it just those excess gases or is there more of a communication or dialogue that's happening with with that bacteria yeah so absolutely you know when we talk about gut health we really are referring to the functioning of our entire gastrointestinal tract so really everything from mouth all the way through to the other end but the hot topic these days has looked in particular at the gut microbiota which are the millions and trillions of bacteria which live within our large intestine and what research is now showing is that this gut microbiota acts almost entirely independently of our brain Mm -hmm. Um, so they're now calling it our second brain and so our gut and our brain are in a constant two-way communication with each other via something called the gut-brain axes and they communicate via the rest and digest nervous system so the parasympathetic nervous system and also our fight or flight uh, nervous system so our sympathetic nervous system. Mm, and which makes what so we do much now, sense, doesn't it? Because when, sorry to interrupt, but I'm just thinking of all those listeners that are thinking, oh, well, when I had an exam, you know, my stomach went to bits and it, it literally feels everything, doesn't it? Like emotions. Exactly. You feel those butterflies in your stomach. You feel nervous. You can feel those emotions in there. So when we do feel stressed, um, and that's because, you know, our brain is telling us that we are, then our rest and digest nervous system slows down because all the blood rushes to our muscles to get them ready for that fight or flight mode. And then obviously when we relax, blood goes back to our gut to support digestion. So this is why when people are stressed, sometimes they struggle to go to the toilet, they suffer from constipation more. But similarly, people do still suffer from diarrhea when they're stressed. And that's because there's this overactive gut motility going on, or this increased hypersensitivity, which we were talking about earlier. Which goes to show how individualized any kind of work on your gut should 
be. I don't think a blanket approach is going to have much of an impact because we've discussed stress and I think overall health and stress is immensely linked. And finally, I had to finish with this conversation with Kevin Whelan, who's the Professor of Dietetics and the Head of the Department of Nutritional Sciences at King's College London. He's he's absolutely wonderful, and I loved our conversation. We, we go right there. What's normal with pooing? All gut health, overall health and fibre, everything basically that you need to know, I think, to round off this episode nicely. So here we go, Kevin Whelan. I think when it comes to poo... Is there a universally accepted standard for what's considered normal? <laughs> so um, that sounds like a really simple question that I'm going to reply with a really complex answer. Okay. So um, I guess, you know, if you asked any member of the public what would be normal, what, they would tell you, well, it's how often I go. Mm. But because we never sit around and discuss it with each other, we probably don't know what everyone else does. And so therefore what what really is normal um so we have to we've got some pretty good studies which we can quote to uh, show what the general population do um and so studies in the us and studies in the uk show that about 90 percent of people um go between three times a week and between three and to three times a day so that's an enormous range so you know so if you think that can be anything from um, someone who goes on Monday Wednesday and Saturday to somebody who goes at 8am 12pm and and 6 in the evening and that's an enormous range and all of those would be considered completely normal and completely healthy and that's just looking at stool frequency there's also stool consistency, so how firm or loose it should be. Um, and again, there's a b- broad spectrum of that. It's really difficult to talk about stool consistency because, you know, what do we compare it <laughs> with? So there are all sorts of validated um, stool charts and things. And uh, what we'd usually compare it to is something called the Bristol Stool Form Scale. Um, and the most common consistencies of stools are what we call types 3, 4 and 5. Um, and they are um, solid, um, but they but they're not hard, um, and they're certainly not runny. So, <laughs> and then the 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 final um, aspect of um, stool output, um, which is considered healthy, is the volume of it, the quantity that we, that we pass every day. And again, this is a really difficult thing because obviously not many people weigh their stools. But no. When, but, <laughs> Actually, I've done loads of those experiments yeah. where we, we do collect stools from people for seven days and we, and we weigh them. Um, and we know that in the UK, um, the average person passes about 100 grams of stool per day. That's a little bit higher in men than it is in women um, because men eat a little bit more fibre mm. um, and because women have sex hormones, which means that transit through their gut is a mm. bit slower and so they pass a little bit less. Um, so... Um, The only thing I would say is on the stool quantity front is that although it's about 100 grams in the UK, in parts, other parts of the world, and I'm I'm particularly thinking of um, some places in Central Africa, stool output can can be like 300, 400 grams per day. So much higher, three, four times higher than in in the UK. And that's because their diet is much, much higher in um, unrefined carbohydrates. So things like fibre and roughage and and things like that. They have much higher um, stool weight. And actually stool weight is a really important feature of gut health. Um, In fact, compared to stool frequency and stool consistency, like nobody wants to go to the toilet too often or too infrequently. We don't want diarrhea or constipation. 
But other than that, frequency and consistency, you know, are not really um, associated with health. The thing that's really associated with health is stool weight. Um, And so, for example, we know that um, uh, having a higher stool weight um, because you eat more fibre is really associated with a lower risk of colorectal cancer, so bowel cancer. Mm. And we know that the heavier your stool because of the more fibre you're eating, the less less bowel cancer you're likely to get in your life. So look out for how much you're passing every day. But, you know, in the last 10 years, loads and loads of research has been published showing that the health of our bowel really impacts virtually every other organ in the body. Um, So if we just look at some examples, we know, for example, that um, the health of your bowel can really, really impact um, mental health. Mm. Um, Studies that try to link the health of your bowel with the health of another organ are really, really difficult to do. And so so I, I, I... I don't want to get too sciencey and talk too much about the study design and the experiments, but it is important to understand we're not completely there in terms of understanding everything about the connection between the bowel and the brain. Mm. Um, But we do know some things. Mm. So, for example, uh, we know that people with depression have a different microbiome, so the bacteria in their gut, um, than do people without depression. But, of course, there could be lots and lots of reasons for that. So we're not sure that that's a cause. But actually, if you look at animal experiments, we know that if you take um, the microbiome from somebody who is depressed, you insert it into a mouse that's a normal mouse, that mouse will develop signs of being depressed. Um, so it won't run around its cage very much. It will just mm. sit and uh, sit and not go out. And so therefore, the microbiome is probably having a causative effect now. I don't think the bowel and um, the microbiome are the only causes of mental illness. Certainly not. Mm. There are lots and lots and lots of other really, really important things. So before we start getting carried away and start saying, (laughs) oh, we just need to take lots of probiotics and prebiotics and lots of fibre and and we'll uh, fight depression. I think we need to think about all of those other things as well. So really excited to talk about other aspects of of, uh, diet and how they can impact um, our our mental health. If you were to very simplistically say, what does... 30 grams of fibre look like, Kevin? I mean, how can we tell our listeners, try and get some of those magical things and get 30 grams? What would it be? Okay, great. So um, you're right. The the key target, well, the UK government recommends we have uh, 30 grams of fibre every day. So first of all, let's look where in our diet do we currently get most fibre from? And Mm. and the answer to that is we get most of our fibre, about 20% of our fibre comes from vegetables um, because they're a really rich source. Um, And in fact, on average, a portion of vegetables, so an 80 gram portion Mm. of, of vegetables, Different vegetables contain different amounts, but on average, they have about two and a half grams of fibre in. Um, If you think about that, two and a half grams just for (laughs) one portion, and yet we need to have 30. That's that's quite a lot. It is. And people not getting their five a day. They're not getting their five a day. And and one of those portions is only giving you two and a half Mm. grams. Um, Compare that to fruit. Fruit actually has even less fibrin in general. Um, So it has about half the amount um, of fibrin. doesn't mean they're not not as good for you because they contain lots of other things as well. Lots of vitamins and minerals guys, but not as much fibre. Exactly, but not as much fibre. So we get most of our fibre from uh, vegetables um, and then the other major source of fibre in our diet are cereals. Um, And we get about 19% of our fibre from uh, from cereals. But again, you've got to be fibre wise when you're thinking about which cereals to eat. We're not saying Cocoa Pops guys, as much as the odd bowl (laughs) may taste gorgeous. (laughs) 
that's absolutely right. So, um, so just as a, as an example, um, a, a sort of whole grain starchy food like. Um, uh, wholemeal spaghetti or brown rice or uh, a potato where you keep the skin on. Mm. Again, they vary widely, but on average, a portion um, of one of those will contain about five grams of fibre. Okay. So, you know, you know, you have some wholemeal spaghetti or some brown rice or a potato with the skin on and you're getting five grams. Well, that's great. Plus your portions of veg. Hopefully you've got at least 10 or 15. That's right. But compare that if you had the the white, the you know, the processed versions of those. So white, white spaghetti or white rice and Bread. Uh, potato. Yeah, exactly. Mm you get about half the amount of fibre in there. So having wholemeal and brown versions of um, cereals and starchy foods is a really great way of doubling your fibre intake from that food. Thank you to all of our amazing experts for coming on the podcast. If you're enjoying Food for Thought, you're going to love what's coming up next. So if you don't subscribe, make sure you do. It's the way that it just pops up on your phone. You get a notification and you'll be the first to hear it each Monday. It would also be amazing if you are a fan of Food for Thought that you could kindly leave us a review. These reviews do actually make a huge difference and they can help us, of course, reach more people and get the information out there to those that need it the most. If you're looking, of course, as well for more information about perhaps my latest book, Deliciously Healthy Pregnancy, uh, the Retrition Clinic for one-to-one nutrition advice and healthy recipes, then just head on over to retrition.com where everything's there in one place. We also have some fabulous evidence-based blogs that are updated weekly, and you can also subscribe to our newsletter, which comes out every Tuesday morning. Now, of course, Retrition Plus is now here, so for evidence-based supplements that you can actually trust, hooray, it took me long enough, but it's finally there, you can go and check out retritionplus.com. And of course, please do follow me on all social channels at Retrition and at Retrition Plus. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.